as you turn to Numbers chapter 13, we continue our story through God's redemption story, reading the Bible together as a church this year and on Sundays walking through the story of Scripture, seeing and understanding the Bible as Jesus did. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells religious leaders, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. The religious leaders missed it, and by God's grace, we don't want to miss that this book, 66 books, hundreds and hundreds of characters and stories are really telling one story, Jesus and the redemption story of God. We begin, we're beginning to pick up the pace now. Now we're in the third book of the Bible, Numbers. Kind of a, a strange name uh, for a book of the Bible it comes from the census that is taken when the book opens, accounting of people that God commands to have done. Uh, they have left slavery in Egypt as a nation that is forming of, at this time about 600,000 men plus women and children. They've been miraculously set free from slavery in Egypt by God's power through Moses and Aaron and the plagues. God's delivered them from the Egyptian army through the Red Sea. They've come to Sinai, and Moses meets with God on the mountain, and Moses delivers to them uh, God's law, Ten Commandments, with further explanations of those commandments. And, and it's basically, this is how we will live together as a God and my people in this land that I'm going to give you. Immediately, of course, they broke them. Immediately, God judged them, was ready to wipe them out and start over. But Moses stood in the gap, interceded for them, and God judged the wicked, allowed the rest who were repentant to remain alive. And now we have this dilemma. How will this great and glorious God, who is holy above all else, be and exist as the God of this amazingly sinful people? How is this going to work? How can such a holy God be the God of such a sinful people? And so last week we spent time seeing how God established a a sacrificial system to make a way for a substitute, an animal, to suffer for their sins in their place. So all the way back to the garden, sin brings about death, separation, and these animals can be offered to die in the place, to experience the wrath of God in the place, to be judged by God in their place, uh, so that they can continue to live even though they continue to sin. This is a big part of the book of Leviticus which is basically a pause on the narrative of the journey from Egypt to the land of promise. And basically Leviticus, God is saying, I am holy, therefore you be holy. Live this way. And since you're going to fail at that over and over, this is how I can continue to be a holy God and dwell among a sinful people through a substitutionary sacrificial system. Numbers picks up the story of their travels and begins with a count of all the people Going back to the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12, God promised to bless him with numerous descendants, a land, and to be a blessing to the entire world. So now in Numbers, we have numerous descendants, incredible numbers of people headed to the land, and their ability to be a blessing to the surrounding nations in the entire world would, want, would somewhat rest in their success in obeying God's commands and showing the world life as God created and designed it to be lived. And they could potentially make life so attractive that other nations would be drawn to this way of life with God as a king. Of course, they would also mostly fail. They would misunderstand, which was also part of the way of paving for the one to come who was the only one who lived this life that God's designed perfectly. 
and through whom eventually the entire world would one day be blessed. But here in Numbers, we are a long way from that. So let's look at Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 26. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us, and indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed, seemed the same to them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have re uh, uh, preserved it all these years. And so even here in 2020, uh, many, many uh, miles away, cultures away, generations away from when these events first occurred, we trust that you are speaking through these events still. And so Father, we ask that this time together, even through this strange medium of video, as we gather around our computers or televisions, we ask that you would bless. Father, how we need, how we need truth from you today, how we need comfort from you, encouragement from you, and Father, how we even need conviction from you. Father, speak today through your word. Glorify yourself and what you accomplish through your word today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As this newly formed nation is just beginning their life together as God's people under this Mosaic covenant given through Moses. How long will they live, or rather, how will they live as God's people? Even more, how will they succeed at their calling and mission? Like think of a brand new Christian. Someone just comes to faith in Christ and they may wonder, like, how am I going to do with this? Will I be successful? Will I struggle? How much will I struggle? How much will I be successful? What are the good things that I'm doing? What are the wrong things that I'm continuing to do? Will they be healthy? Will they obey? Will they enjoy the blessings and the benefits of this new life in Christ? Well, it's going to depend on a few things that we see the Israelites experience in this passage today. So we'll talk first about them, them and then make applications that help us today. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. So part of what the Old Testament does is shows us examples to follow, good examples to 
desire to emulate in your life and negative examples, poor examples, to say, I don't want to be like that. It's okay to draw those conclusions from Old Testament stories as long as we don't make ourselves the center of the story. As long as we don't make the story all about us today. It meant something to them, them then, and we can make applications that apply to our lives today. So with that in mind, what can we learn from this story in the life of God's people? Their ability to experience God's blessing would depend on, number one, their ability to believe God and his promises as evidenced in their trust and obedience. Their ability to believe God and his promises as evidenced in their trust and obedience. Going back to Genesis 12, God had repeatedly promised to not only form a people who would be so numerous they couldn't be counted, but that he would give them this land to live in and live as his people. And they had traveled from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and now they're on the edge of Canaan in the wilderness of Paran, just south of the land of promise. They're close enough for Moses at God's command to send out a team of 12 scouts, one from each tribe to go into Canaan and see what waits for them there. This is what happens in the opening verses of chapter 13. These men uh, were all leaders in their tribes, and Moses gave them clear instructions about where to go and what, look, what to look for. Look at verse 17 of, of chapter 13. When Moses sent them out to scout the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit from the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So after 40 days, they return. They come back with samples. One being a sample of a cluster of grapes that's so big it has to be carried on poles between two men. They also came with the report that we read earlier. This land is amazing. Everything we could ever hope and dreamed it would be. This is true. However, it is filled with big and scary people and big and scary cities. Caleb's response, everyone be quiet. It's our land. Let's go take it. There's no reason to be afraid. Let's go take the land that God's promised to us. By the way, when you get to Joshua 14, you see Caleb again, 40 years later at the age of 85, basically saying the same thing. Now we're in the land. I'm going to go take my portion. I'm 85 years old. Doesn't matter. Let's go get it. Amazing character in the Bible to learn from. Now, the other men who scouted the land said, no, 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 the people are too strong. The land is too dangerous. They're, they're the famed giant great men from way back in Genesis 6 and Genesis 10 talks about that. They're so big. We seem as grasshoppers in their eyes. Just take a second and put yourself in the shoes of the people hearing this report from these two different groups of spies or scouts rather. Caleb and Joshua are saying, it's our land. Let's go take it. The other 10 scouts are saying, no, no, no. This is too hard. We can't do this. How will the people respond? What will the people do? Feel the tension of this moment. The, the future is uncertain, and different leaders are telling you different things. Who to believe? Well, we don't really even need to guess what comes next. Chapter 14, total epic meltdown. Verse 1. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? 
Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. It's poor leadership. We are ruined. Our only path forward is death, mayhem, and destruction. Notice also it's the men who are crying out and calling out in distress about their wives and children. One hundred percent overcome by fear. Well, Moses and the leaders respond, verse five, that Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Notice where their confidence lay. They see the same obstacles. They see the same opportunity. But their focus was on the presence of the Lord is with us. He will bring us into this land. He will give it to us. They are, in fact, rebelling, not just against Moses and Aaron, as they point out, but you are, in fact, rebelling against the Lord because this is his work he's calling them into that they are refusing to take part in. Finally, verse 10, God intervenes. While the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. Not glory to save, but now it's glory to judge. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with the plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. But Moses replied to the Lord, the Egyptians will hear about it. For by your strength, you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, how you, Lord, are, the, are seen face to face, how your cloud stands over them, and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now may my Lord's power be magnified, just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of their father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. Verse 20, the Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you have requested. Yet as surely as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these 10 times and did not obey me, will ever see the land I swore to give their fathers. None of those who have despised me will see it. God, again, like Exodus 32, wants to start over. Moses intercedes and for the sake of the name and the glory of God, pleads with the Lord not to do it. And God decides that judgment will fall on this faithless and fearful generation. So that all of those 20 years of age and older, details given later on, won't go into the land of promise. Only Caleb and Joshua would. Everyone else would die out as they wander the wilderness for the next 40 years. And their children would inherit the promised land of God. Notice also the repetition in verse 
18 of what we saw way back in Exodus 34. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord would pardon them, but the sacrifice would be their judgment, their separation from the land of promise, a type of death. The nation God was forming would inherit the land of promise, but this particular generation wouldn't. They would suffer punishment for their sins. Liberty from Egypt, yes. Promised land of rest, no. And this generation's failure to inherit the land will keep coming back up through the rest of scriptures. The Lord tells, Mo tells Moses, lead them away from the land of promise and back to the Red Sea. And for 40 years, as recorded throughout the rest of the book of Numbers, this 600,000 men plus women and children would wander aimlessly through the wilderness in an area of land roughly half the size of Louisiana. So think of the population of Greater New Orleans and Greater Baton Rouge basically wandering from New Orleans through Baton Rouge and Lafayette, Lake Charles, maybe up to DeRitter, across the New Roads and in the, into the toe of the boot, and just wander around that part of the state for 40 years until this entire generation of people dies out. It was abject failure to believe the promises of God that he had been telling his people for a long time. I'm making you a people and I'm giving you a land. Okay, so, so maybe we might think that that might be excusable. You know, God gave those promises to people long ago, people that they didn't know, they just heard stories about. But with their own eyes, they saw God's power. With their own eyes, they saw his deliverance and his might, and yet they couldn't trust him to help them do what he's been saying all along he's going to do. Despite the leader's exhortation, this is going to happen. Let's go do it. This really is just, and, and this is really just one example of this. This, is, this has already happened back in Exodus. It's already happened in Numbers on a, a few occasions, and it will happen again throughout the rest of the book of Numbers. This struggle to believe and trust and obey God and his good, wise promises and strength to provide everything he says that we need. To thrive as his people. They had to believe him. They had to trust him. And they had to obey him. And this will flavor the nation of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Times they got it right. And times they, they failed miserably. Secondly, they also had to understand how essential it was for the presence of of God to be with them. Now, when you talk about the presence of an omnipresent God, this refers more than just God being there, because God is everywhere. It refers to the presence of God in particular places, revealing himself to certain people to make himself known in, in a greater way than just the general omnipresence of God. This, this way of intimacy, or maybe this way of judgment, are bringing strength or hope or encouragement or help them to win a victory. Like God is with his people to help them do a task he's called them to do or to reveal himself in ways that they would know him and love him in, in deeper ways. It's an intensification of the presence of God. Uh, for instance, as long as we're alive, I'll always be married to Jennifer, right? Um, even if she's not in the same room with me, like right now, she is a reality in my life. I, I wear this wedding ring to remind myself and declare to others that uh, I am hers and she is mine. But there is a significant difference when she is in the same room as me. It's much, much 
more enjoyable for me to be in her presence. Um, um, it's much more enjoyable uh, for me to experience that, that physical intimacy of her presence being right there. In a much greater way, God is omnipresent, but being in his actual presence, having his actual presence with us to bless, encourage, give strength is a much greater reality and sometimes even a terrifying reality. The presence of the Lord with his people in Exodus and Numbers was seen in the idea of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. God gave instructions to the Israelites to build this portable structure, and wherever they camped, they would construct it, and the presence of the Lord would inhabit this structure. And Moses would enter in and meet with the Lord in this tent of meeting, and as you read in places like Exodus 34, Moses would in fact come out of this tent of meeting and literally be glowing, uh, radiant, not, not his own glory, but from being in the, the presence of the glory of God, he would give off this radiant glory, so much so he had to cover himself because it, it probably made people really uncomfortable. Like, dude, you're glowing. Can you stop doing that? And so tabernacle and tent of meeting flavor the book of Numbers more than any other book of the Old Testament. Tabernacle, for instance, occurs 32 times, tent of meeting 54 times. It's a huge theme of the book, and what we discover, especially from Numbers 14, the success and strength of the Israelites was not in the number of men and soldiers they counted in the opening chapters, the 600,000, but their strength and success is in the presence of the Lord with his people. See this explicitly revealed at the end of Numbers 14. After they were judged by God to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, how did they respond? Humility? Repentance? Sadly, no. Verse 39. When Moses reported these words to all the Israelites, the people were overcome with grief. Well, that seems good. They got up early the next morning and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, Let's go to the place the Lord promised, for we were wrong. But Moses responded, Why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. Don't go. Because the Lord is not among you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. The Amalekites and Canaanites are right in front of you, and you will fall by the sword. The Lord won't be with you since you have turned from following him. But they dared to go up to the ridge of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that part of the hill country came down, attacked them, and routed them as far as Hormah. The people of whom they were so afraid of before, so afraid they refused to own the promise of God and trust his strength to help them, despite the clear exhortation of leadership to do so, now all of a sudden, they're more afraid of the misery of the consequences of their sin, that they disobey God again and are routed. This is, in fact, the epitome of fake repentance, false repentance. To run off and try and correct your mistakes, to try and fix the consequences of your sins without any regard for the presence of God. I don't like what I'm about to suffer, so I need to try and fix this situation so I don't have to suffer these consequences. When the greatest concern in true repentance is how has this affected my relationship with God? And what do I need to do to repair the intimacy that I have with God? That's what I care about most. 
consequences, let they be whatever they, they are. I'll trust him with those as well. But what breaks my heart in true repentance is how have I offended and sinned against this God that loves me so much? But this is not true repentance. This is, we don't like how we're going to suffer. Let's go fix it. And of course, the presence of the Lord does not go with them. This is covering yourself up with fig leaves that we learned about back in Genesis 3. So like Israel, we are also called to believe the promises of God by faith, trust him and his word to such a degree that it shows up in obedience. That's, like, that's how much you know. That's, that's how you know if you really do trust and believe the promises of God, the, the word of God, does it show up in obedience? And in the way we do this, there will be a direct correlation to how healthy and vibrant our walk with Jesus is. And our inability to do this could reveal not only a severe problem in our spiritual health and vitality, but even worse, we could in fact reveal that we aren't really one of God's people. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews goes back to this very scene in the life of the nation of Israel to make this point. Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end of the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came up out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for, for 40 years? Wasn't it those uh, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Um, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging a group of believers in the first century who were Jews that had become Christians. And the message of the entire book is basically continue in the ways of Christ. He is better. He is a substance that all the shadows and the signs of the Old Testament were pointing to. He has fulfilled all of that. So do not return back to Judaistic sacrifices, laws, and rituals in which Christ has come to fulfill and make no longer necessary. And to have heard the gospel, to have seen and tasted the new covenant under Christ, and to return to Judaism, legalistic laws and rituals which in the first century made you right with God, to this writer was the same as coming to the brink of the promised land and refusing to enter. Because there was more perceived safety in what you knew than the fears of the unknown in the promised land, or for the recipients of the book of Hebrews, in this new life in Christ. The tension was, let's stay where it's safe in Judaism and not venture into the unknown that we're afraid of, the life of the church and life with Christ. The language used by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.14, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly into the end the reality that we had at the start. Now, this is not the language of work salvation. This is not the language of potentially losing genuine salvation. This is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. We are participants in Christ and this new life and his rest, as chapter 4 of Hebrew explains, if we hold firmly into the end 
what we had at the start. If we don't, we are not only not participating in the life in Christ, but will have shown what we profess wasn't genuine to have to, to begin with. As John writes so well in 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. How does he love the world? In what way does he love the world? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him, believe, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe, it's not believed. Believe in the present tense. Believe and continue to believe. Whoever believes and keeps believing. Perseverance in belief isn't what makes you saved or even keeps you saved because salvation is God's work. He saved us. He keeps us. He who began a good work in us, he will finish it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. But perseverance in belief is that ongoing affirmation that we are his and we are his people. So then God's people are those who continually believe him and his promises, trusting him and his word, and reveal that belief and trust through obedience. For us, that is the path to spiritual health and vitality. And when we stumble, there is this genuine repentance at the offense that we've made to God, not simply because we hate the consequences that we suffer. And so what is your relationship to God's word, God's promises, God's truth? How much are you feasting on and enjoying and believing and trusting him and obeying his word? Like sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we speak much of God's grace. And, and the takeaway for some is that obedience is optional. God loves me because I'm made in his image. God loves me unconditionally through Christ. God will always love me. Even sin can't separate me from God's love for me in Christ Jesus. And yet there can be an unhealthy relationship with sin. And the people who are saying these words, to being too cozy or comfortable with sin, like kind of shrugging it off. That's never, ever how God feels about sin in the scriptures. You never see God dismissive of sin. He instituted an ongoing sacrificial system of animals to atone for the sins of his people. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals <coughs> sacrificed, not for food, but because people were sinful. Until his own son came as a lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, to make the final and forever sacrifice. His son had to die, not because he was sinful, but because we are sinful. Again, we, we saw this last week in Hebrews 10. We'll flip over a few pages to there again. Verse 11, Hebrews 10. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. We saw this last week. But this man, Jesus, after offering once and forever sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. We saw this last week. We'll skip down to verse 19. Therefore, in light of all these things that Jesus has done for us, in light of this final and forever sacrifice to perfect those who are sanctified, 
and forgive those who are sanctified. In light of that, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. In light of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, live like this, do these things. Live in this way, holding on to the confession of our hope, watching out for one another to provoke to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, even though we can't right now. We're still gathering digitally to, in order to encourage and spur one another on. Next verse, verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning, Jesus has done all of this as a sacrifice for our sins. Live in this way. But if you don't, verse 26, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy. Based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant for which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For he who goes on deliberately sinning. Now this is not the normal Christian experiences of everyday struggles with temptation and sin. We're, some days by God's grace we do well and some days we struggle, but God's gracious with us to, 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 to bring us uh, through discipline and bring us back to him and remind us of who we are in Christ. This is willful, defiant rebellion against God like the Israelites in Numbers 14 rejecting Christ and fully embracing a lifestyle and love of sin to them. They will fall under God's judgment and it is indeed terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God if you're experiencing his judgment and not his grace. Like church, we need Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. We need the end of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 32, for if he gave us his son, will he not give us everything that we need in order to be his people? We need the reminders of how strong and secure our salvation is in Christ, but we need the warning passages of scripture as well to never become flippant about our sins, to see how serious God sees sin. As, as Tim Keller famously says, we are so amazingly sinful that Jesus had to die, the Son of God, the only one who got it right. He had to die. And yet we are so amazingly loved that he was glad to die. Take heed, Christian and non-Christian, through the example of the Israelites and their rejection 
and rebellion of God, there is judgment. God will not extend grace and opportunity to repent and believe and be invited into his family forever. There comes a time when there is no more time. Only God knows when that is. And so we plead with you, we plead with people we love until your dying breath, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Fall fully on the grace of God to save you and redeem you and forgive you and give you life to experience his grace and be adopted into his family and never ever become cozy with sin. He alone, Jesus, perfectly succeeded in every way that we fail. He alone trusted and obeyed God. He alone is our way to reconciliation with the holy God who made us and gives us right standing before God. He is our way to be adopted into God's family as a forever son and daughter, never to be cast out. Not because, not because God made light of sin and swept it under the rug and didn't care about it, but because he dealt with all of it himself through his son so that his son would be glorified so that we would be forgiven and made whole, so that we would get credit for his righteousness. And it gets even better, so that God's spirit would move inside of us and we would become the dwelling place of God on earth. What? Yes, the presence of God, which dwelt with his people and the tabernacle and tent of meeting in Numbers, would later dwell in the temple in the Holy of Holies, a permanent structure Solomon built. That temple, as we'll see later in our, in our journey through the uh, Bible in the Old Testament, the temple that Solomon built, destroyed by the Babylonians around 586 BC, later rebuilt to a lesser state after the exile, ultimately finished in 444 BC, damaged repeatedly but not destroyed by the Romans, uh, by the Greeks and then the Romans. Herod comes along around 20 BC and begins to update it and expand it, try to restore it to its former glory. It takes him 46 years to do that. And during Jesus' lifetime, it was finished. And by the time of his ministry, it was completely done. And Jesus shows up and John says about him in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the word is God. And a few verses later, verse 14, the word God became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word God became flesh and dwelt literally in the Greek tabernacled among us. God's presence, tabernacle, temple, and now Jesus. Jesus, in fact, would tell the religious leaders, tear this temple down, pointing to the temple that Herod had built. It's an amazing, huge structure. Tear this temple down, and in three days, I will rebuild it. And they thought what any of us would think. You can't, you can't rebuild this temple in three days. That's nuts. It took 46 years for Herod to build this thing. You can't build it again in three days. And John writes for us in John chapter 2, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the statement Jesus had made, which seems to imply when Jesus first said it, they didn't know what he was talking about. This is why Jesus would tell the Samaritan woman by the well, a day is coming when we will no longer worship God in temples, but will worship him in spirit and in truth. He knew what was coming. After his death, resurrection, ascension, after the church was birthed and began to spread in 70 AD, the temple of God in Jerusalem 
would be destroyed by the Romans and has never been rebuilt. And so where is God's presence? The presence that was in the tabernacle and the temple and Jesus, where is his presence today? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. God's presence today is in his people, the church, me and you. We are the dwelling place of God. We can't go forward without God's presence because as his people, wherever we go, we are the place where God's spirit and therefore God dwells. This is amazing, Christian. Like, don't ever let this become trite or old or, or tired. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Jewish religious leaders in the days of Jesus, they couldn't fathom God taking on flesh, dwelling among them. They, they couldn't handle God residing within a person because their God resided within this temple. And they really couldn't handle God residing within a bunch of people like us, especially Gentiles. So where is God in the days of COVID-19, global pandemic? He's right where he's been since Pentecost, in his people, carrying his love and his gospel far and wide. Where is God when tornadoes hit on Easter Sunday? And maybe even today while we're watching this, God have mercy, I hope that doesn't happen. In his people to show his love, to run chainsaws and make meals and pick up debris and give out air hugs and social distance love to as many people as possible. The presence of God is in you, Christian. You have already all you need to experience the fullness of life with God. Our struggles are not rooted in God's presence not being in us, but they're rooted in our struggle to see him in us, to see what is already true about us and to live out of that new reality and not live according to our old ways and our old self. Non-Christian, Jesus also told the Samaritan woman by the well in John 4, Yes, the day is coming and the hour is now here when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Maybe for you today, non-Christian, is the day you will recognize your sinfulness has kept you from experiencing the presence of God in your life. Your sin has kept you separated from God. But today, the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see that Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you into his family, to forgive you, to give credit to your account for the righteousness of Christ so that your Father in heaven can look at you and call you a dearly loved son, a dearly loved daughter. Will you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus? Will you understand what it means to become a child of God? Will you tell somebody, like tell us, we would love to teach you what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and follow Jesus and live all of your life with Jesus as your king and as your savior and as your friend. Uh, tell us, tell, tell another Christian you know or, or, or another church that you're aware of. We would, we would love to help find anyone who would help you and disciple you in what it means to be a part of God's people, a part of this living temple where God's spirit lives and dwells today. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for everything you've done, that, that we're, we're not in this position uh, of, 
of, of fear or are struggling to embrace this promised land, because we have Christ, we have everything you have promised for us. We know it's not been fully consummated. We know it only gets better. There are even better things to come. But we have Jesus. We have everything. The fullness of God's promises. So help everyone who's listening to this, help everyone who's a part of the Crossing Church to fully understand and embrace what the full life of Christ in them looks like. What Christ flavors and is, is, is driving every single thing we do as, as fathers and mothers, as husbands, as wives, as students, as children, as everything, Father. It's all about Jesus being fully experienced in all of life. And I pray for anyone who's listening to this or watching this today who doesn't know Jesus. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would make them alive in Christ Jesus as they turn from their sin and as they trust in Jesus. Do this good work for your glory. Help them to see who they need to tell, who can begin to disciple them and teach them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you can work through this medium. And we trust that you will in Jesus' name. Amen.